You are listening to Problematic Radio. I'm chilled. About a year ago, I was talking to an acquaintance of mine at the New York Times. She was almost reluctant to admit it, but she said, at the end of the day, Mike Cernovich breaks news. And in this episode, Mike Cernovich is my most explosive guest yet. Today, Mike is at the center of the conversation on almost every cultural and political controversy of the day. Sometimes he even is the controversy. He had a whole career before the 2015 primary in writing and another career in law before that. But when Trump stepped onto the scene and our entire reality kind of reshuffled the deck, he became a hero of the populist right and also a new kind of media personality and journalist. I think interesting in that this kind of career just did not exist 10 or 15 years ago. But today, they shape the narrative. Some would, and still today, say Mike is a part of the far right, or even the alt-right, which is absolutely not true. And we got to the bottom of all of that, what Mike actually thinks, uh, and every controversy that's been thrown at him, but mainly what we talked about was media, social media, free speech. Most recently, Mike's documentary, Hoaxed, was banned from Amazon. No reason was given. Because today, with just a few companies controlling almost the entire distribution of this stuff, no reason has to be given. They're in charge. The walls of our walled gardens grow stronger. He's Cernovich on Twitter, and you can check out his documentary, Hoaxed, on iTunes. Now let's get into it. From Nation Factory, I'm Mike Solana, and this is Problematic. One of the reasons that I wanted to bring you in, I mean, there are a lot. I follow you on Twitter. You're sort of like a lightning rod for controversy, um, specifically among the media class. And in a way, I think that makes you kind of like a like a Rosetta Stone for a lot of the things that are happening in our media landscape right now. There's a lot that we can learn from just the dramas that you have been in. I want to just start with, I know a bit about you, quite a lot about you, I would say, just because I follow you on Twitter. But before I did this interview, I wanted to do a bit of research. And I went and checked out your, like I Googled you, which I've never done before. And I went to your Wikipedia page first. In the very first line, it's, Mike Cernovich is an American social media personality, anti-feminist, men's rights activist, political commentator, and conspiracy theorist. The next thing on Google was the Southern Poverty Law Center, just like kind of drilling down on these things. The whole article on, on Wikipedia and the Southern Poverty Law Center thing, it felt to me just really strange to read. It's just not who I'm reading on Twitter. What is your take on that framing, specifically the Wikipedia framing? Is that like accurate? And yeah, let's just start there. Yeah, there's a parallel world of me and I think any public figure. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, where if you know me, if you read me regularly, you read this stuff about me and you're like, who is that person? That is not the person that I read. That's not consistent with what I see. And then, of course, it's especially funny when people who have known me in real life for years do that Google thing and read about me. Who is, again, who is this person? Now, that is all strategy. Wikipedia, due to Google's algorithm, is preferentially treated. It gets the number one search result for your name, and that is the narrative. So you could do my Wikipedia line by line. And just from the outset, social media personality, sure, that's true. I just made a film, one of the top independent selling films of the year, objectively true, objectively true, right? So I'm not even like, I make films and then I have some <laughs> art house, you know, thing, some film project. Like, no, I've made two. And the, the latest one, Hoax, has done quite well, objectively speaking. Wrote a book, Gorilla Mindset, 1400 views on Amazon. So objectively, I'm an author. 
I've sold more than 99.999% of authors ever will. But that gets left out because that creates complications for the people who control those Wikipedia pages. So instead, they try to cast me in whatever dubious light that they can, and they throw in that loaded terminology, which is often just inaccurate. So for example, they, they said that I'm a frequent host of Alex Jones. And the answer is just, that's just not true. I like Alex. I'm not here to, to bash Alex, but I haven't done anything with Alex probably since 2017. It's not even true, but it, it doesn't matter. If you look at my Wikipedia page, you'll notice that little lock on the corner. So it's a protected page. Nobody can change it except a couple little admins who obsess over me. And then as you go through that Wikipedia article, you notice there's like five paragraphs. I got into an internet beef with this lefty guy. Sam Cedar was his name. It's just some dumb internet beef. Five paragraphs. As if that's the most interesting thing in the world. It's basically he made the kind of joke that I got canceled over. And then I got him canceled because, hey, that's how it goes. And then there was a little brouhaha. But it's not actually that significant. But it gets five paragraphs. But things like I broke the story about John Connors being a sexual harasser. I made a member of Congress resign. They delete that usually. I sued to unseal the records in Jeffrey Epstein case. That, if it's ever in there, is like a sentence. It isn't. Mike Cernovich spearheaded a campaign to obtain records in Jeffrey Epstein. Three paragraphs. It's five paragraphs about some internet beef. So the whole soup to nuts, Wikipedia is a complete disaster. Right. This is one one thing that's going to keep happening in this interview is like we end up slipping into this sort of like they language, which let's define who they are. So we have the Wikipedia on one hand, but you also have, I mean, you have the Southern Poverty Law Center, you have media people. I want to talk about anti-feminism and Pizzagate in a, in a minute, because those are the things that they're, they seem really obsessed with. Who are they? Like, like what is, what are the sort of power fault lines here? They is a decentralized element of far left-wing radicals. So here's they in Wikipedia. Everybody thinks anyone can edit your Wikipedia page. If you're not prominent or controversial, that's true. You can go edit the Wikipedia page for your hometown. You, me, anybody can today. But there's a hierarchy in Wikipedia of admins and super admins and editors. And it only takes two or three people who have a certain amount of wiki clout to take over your page. There's nothing you can do about it at all. So, for example... Someone tried to create a Wikipedia entry for hoax, and that Wikipedia entry was deleted for hoax not being notable. And you're like, not notable? Best-selling film, banned by Amazon, written about in The Hollywood Reporter, made the Associated Press bestseller list. But that could, again, make me look more prominent. There's no Wikipedia entry for your guerrilla mindset. You know, so they have all these little rules that they would argue about. But when you try to apply their own rules to them, because I'm a lawyer. So as a lawyer, I would say, why is there five paragraphs of just some dumb internet beef that lasted, I think, 36 hours in total, right? What is the significance of that when I got a ton of media coverage from the John Conyers case? Why isn't there five, you know, five paragraphs on that, even though that would be too much? So they is not some nefarious Illuminati type force. They would be the hive mind that we all are a part of. We're all a part of a global brain or a networked brain or a collective conscious. And the they is usually a, just a spinoff, a far left-wing spinoff. The same is true of, you know, the media people just, we, you know, I talk about this in the hoax a little bit, how 
just they they go for every tweet that I say. And I've been with reporters and they have notifications on for my tweets because they're <laughs> hoping I say something bad and then they'll make that into a huge story. Meanwhile, their you know, their teammates will say things truly horrific and there, there's no kind of pass. Well, so we saw this with the New York Times and like the Sarah Jong controversy, yeah. the sort of like all those horrifically racist things that she said, and she's still out there as a sort of well-respected voice in media. There's almost nothing that they can say. I think it's because there's an assumption on the side of the left-wing media in particular. They really, they all have this assumption that they are just really good people. And so, of course, if someone says something that seems kind of off-color, they're not a bad person. They just said that bad thing. They really believe that. And I think they see people who don't agree with them as, as bad. You know, it's, I think a lot of conservatives tend to think that lefties are, are stupid. I think lefties tend to think that anybody right of Joseph Stalin is an evil person. Will Chamberlain, though, I think has a, a more profound explanation that I've heard anyway, which is journalists view themselves as the priestly class. They are the popes and the bishops. They are the ones selling indulgence. And that's a great model to look at because you notice how offended reporters get if you criticize them, right? There was Bellagi and Taylor Lorenz who just writes about TikTok kids. Yeah, before that, it was Recode going after him for the uh, the virus stuff. Yeah, yeah. They, they really do feel like they're beyond any kind of criticism. So I think it's less that they're ideologically biased in a sense that they believe all my friends are good people, because I've seen a lot of them look the other way on sexual harassment within media. There was something called the shitty men in media list. And that story kind of went away. Male predators and media. It's a huge problem. But those male reporters are part of that sort of priest class. I think the best way to understand media, at least as a mental model who rest there could do some kind of shortcut is they view themselves as bishops and cardinals and popes. So when their priests are out there being pedophiles, They'll cover that up because they're protecting the priesthood. They're protecting that journalistic hood. And that's why they don't cancel each other, right? You almost never see reporters criticize each other. So, I mean, I get into trouble a lot just from the tech side of things. I started becoming a lot more vocal about media stuff a couple of years ago. It was scary at first, but I just kept doing it. And because of that, I started getting followed by sort of not only just media people who at first wanted to attack me and now are more reluctant to do so. But also uh, sort of quietly, like emails sent to me from other CEOs and people in tech. But then also journalists will hit me up and be like, hey, that person who you're criticizing is a total idiot. I agree with you. But they could never say it publicly, which in some ways I relate to. It's like none of us want to go after the people on, quote, our side. It is this like tribal impulse. You know, you know that those people at the end of the day are going to come to bat for you. They're going to defend you if someone attacks you for some crazy shit. So you don't really want to burn those bridges. Right. VCs don't criticize other VCs, even when some people do some shady things. I remember it was a huge scandal years ago when a VC who was going to have the Airbnb deal got squeezed out of there by Paul Graham's people. And he wrote about it. And then I tried to find the piece later on and it just kind of like vanished. So, yeah. So even stuff like that, with every class, you don't see people criticizing each other, except now with the woke stuff. So you'll have a VC saying that person is, it's like every subculture has a set of rules. So say, for example, you're like DHH, right? You'll criticize other people for maybe not being woke, even though he parties in Qatar and races cars in Qatar. And we can talk about human trafficking and slavery in Qatar, but like nobody wants to annoy him because then they know that he'll be obsessed and go after them. So they're kind of afraid of him. But when it comes to like deal flow or term sheets, you'll never see that. 
because that goes to like the religion of venture capital. You'll never see DHA say, I saw a term sheet that Sequoia tried to pull and this is a outrage and here's a term sheet. You're so right about this. I've never even really thought about it this way. Your, your first thing when you're like, you know, VCs don't criticize each other. I'm thinking, oh, I see it all the time and we do it ourselves. But when it comes to the actual like substance of what we do, you're right. There isn't much at all. And you're, it's part of, that's part of like being in a guild. Lawyers rarely criticize other lawyers for being lawyers. VCs rarely criticize other VCs for being VCs. Even though some of them are just unethical and shady and we've all heard stories about what people do and try to get away with. So reporters don't criticize other reporters, but then they take it a notch up. So if I tweeted out, here's a term sheet that was bad, VCs wouldn't be, how dare you harass these VCs? They wouldn't say anything. Right. They wouldn't say, I agree with him. He's right. right but this idea that I've done some kind of sacrilegious act and I need to be destroyed. People would be like, well, you know, that's kind of true. But oh, I don't quietly. We'd all be sharing it to our Slack. We'd be like, yeah, yeah like, fuck that guy. <laughs> exactly. Again, we're all, we're all part of a guild. Um, friends of mine, when they get into a little bit of trouble, even where, where there are things that are a little objectionable, I'll, I'll send a text or something. But I don't think it's my job necessarily to put them on blast because everyone else is. So there's always going to be guild-like behavior. Due to hive mind, again, just network effect, our brains all kind of connected, seeing things a different way. We have more empathy for people who are like us and experience with us or experience the world the way we have. But journalists, so it's just another level where how dare you criticize anything that this person said ever, this is terrible, you're harassing us, you're trying to get us killed. No one else does that other than reporters. I do think the harassment thing specifically is pretty concerning. You know, when you work for the New York Times, you are, in my opinion, one of the most powerful people in the world. I was made fun of by, so Kevin Roos made fun of me once for saying something like that. This morning, this, this morning, I saw that because of a tweet of Kevin Roos's, Facebook just removed a video on hydroxychloroquine that now, you know, a billion people can't see. How is that not power? Like, clearly you're powerful. So we, we need to be able to criticize you publicly. Oh, sure. I've, I learned that early on. They're unethical and disingenuous in how they cast harassment. They'll say, oh my God, I'm getting death threats. Show the death threats, dude. Everybody on the internet gets death threats. Yeah, I've okay. gotten death threats. Yeah. And also, yeah. I think it's weird. This is a weird thing about our age right now as well, where to get a death threat, I mean, some people treat it like it's it's almost a like a status thing. You know, look how important I am that these people are harassing me. That's like right. a bizarre... With reporters, though, when you look at the death threats, it'll be things like, I hope you fall off a cliff or something. It's not even a death threat. It isn't... You live at 12345 Street, and I can't wait. I watched you go to the grocery store yesterday. I get shit like that. Holy real stuff. Shit. How do you manage yeah. that just psychologically? I'm the wrong. I'm not, I'm not the right person to try anything on, I guess, is the way I look at it. I think they need to be probably a little bit more afraid of me than, than me of them. And they, and they see that too. But so that's, um, yeah, I've had people write like serial killer looking letters. Just real creepy shit. I don't post them though, and, and I don't post them online. Why not? Because then you let them know that they found out where you are. Right. So if you say, oh my God, I got this threat at my apartment. Now they're like, oh, I know where he lives now. I did get that address, right? So the real death threat you don't even post about. So whenever I see these reporters, oh my God, I'm getting death threats. You know, you're getting nasty emails. You're getting nasty tweets. I get hundreds of nasty tweets a day. Get over it. Yeah, the idea that they don't have this power 
it, it's to me beyond is beyond anything worth discussing. It isn't interesting. It's utterly banal point. It would be like saying is a billionaire powerful. Now, so for, no, no, I mean, maybe he's not. <laughs> for you, so now you specifically, your career online, it's sort of everything kind of begins. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it sort of begins with guerrilla mindset. And then there's a, a pretty significant switch during the Trump stuff. So you go from what feels like a sort of self-help writer for men in particular to definitely like a right wing, I would say a provocateur or something, but also like you're a quote, for lack of a better phrase, thought leader in that space on uh, the populist right in the Trump years. Now, the things that seemed to and you can just is that roughly correct before I kind of move on? Yeah, I had an earlier career too as a lawyer. Yeah, and then I started writing. I wrote, I had the four hour work week, which isn't a four hour work week, but the idea that you can live abroad, I think, is probably traceable to Tim Ferriss, even in the even though I never read his book, just in the the zeitgeist of the age. Yeah, so I started off a lawyer, then I started writing, and then I started to make a little bit of money. And by a little bit I mean a few hundred dollars a month. But then I said, Okay, I have a few hundred a month, I can scale this up. Um, I can scale this up to a few thousand at least. And then, yeah, then I leaned all in from law to, cause I, I was actually a published legal scholar and I have a whole, whole backstory there too. But then I would definitely leaned all into the, a lot of bro stuff, gym stuff. I used to do fashion stuff for men when I cared about such things, then guerrilla mindset. And then there's definitely an arc. Yeah, that leads me into politics and media. Right. So it does seem with both of those camps, the kind of like speaking to mostly probably young men and then on the Trump stuff, I think there are like two stories that are told about you and they're kind of like weapons against those different points in your career. And there might be some validity to them. I kind of want to get into it. Uh, the first would be on the self-help stuff. I think that's where a lot of the accusations of anti quote anti-feminism come in and misogyny and things like this what is your take on on all of that the criticisms that, that, that is leveled against you because it seems like i mean you have a massive body of work i didn't see that many super objectionable quotes I've, i saw some tweets that could be read in a couple different ways like what is the truth there what do you really think yeah the, the truth is that it's a disingenuous attack the way i usually respond to it is according to my media critics Everyone has sex once a week, missionary position only after a few Miller lights, right? And it's an inauthentic attack. They've twisted articles I wrote on, you know, very kinky stuff that I know from firsthand, a lot of people find quite interesting, women especially. The stuff that they nail me on or try to, the readership of that was actually 60% women, 40% men, whereas everything else I write is 80 or 90% men, 10% women. So a lot of women would actually share my sort of how-to guides to, you know, kinky sexual behavior to their boyfriends. They would read it. I would see it reposted on Tumblr, which was interesting in its own way. And then they, tr they try to like twist that into, oh, you're advocating raping people. It's like, no, if you're talking about, you know, a certain, and I won't even say the words because then that'll get But it's edited. just like literally what we're talking about, it sounds like is kinky sex. That's what, yeah, and kinky consensual sex. kinky sex. Yeah, people like to do things. I, I learned because I had been in a marriage and then I started dating and I was like trying new things. And I was like, okay, the the world has changed um, <laughs> a bit from when I was in college and whatnot. And then I, you know, I just write about that kind of stuff. And then they try to twist it into something that it's not. So for me, that's just, it's, it's disingenuous, but that's where they get it from, which is like if, if I say something like at least heterosexual women, 
like dominant men, right? Well, that's anti-feminist. No, it isn't. It's literally not. You can go on Jezebel. You can go on Slate. You can read articles from these same feminist writers. There was even one from Jessica Valenti, which is catcalling is awful. And then two years later, I, I don't get catcalled anymore. Can't believe it. So I would just say, no, every, like, not every woman, obviously, right? But for the vast majority of people, if you're a guy with some force of will, some assertiveness, a woman is going to respond to that much more than, oh, hey, honey, where do you want to go to eat tonight? Oh, I don't know. Where do you want to eat? Hmm, I don't know. What do you want to do? Oh, are you enjoying this? Is this fun for you? How? It just doesn't, doesn't like that. So that becomes anti-feminist, even though you can go to the same literature that the feminists have written and show they're all complaining that their guys are just chuds and don't take any kind of action. But then that again, that gets spun out. Yeah, my read of, of all that stuff for you, like when you're speaking to men in that way, and it seems like you, it's something you used to do kind of a while ago more than now, it always just seemed like you were just telling men to be men to like stand up and be stronger and, you know, in control of their lives and confident and that that would attract women. It was almost like a prescription for being attractive. You were like, here's how to improve your dating life. That's for sure. What got me in the weeds was writing about kink. So in hindsight, I never would have, I don't know. I don't want to say that because then you let them control you knowing that they'll lie. So for example, I've said, I live in like a childish world where if I'm quoting someone, I now have to spell out the words because when I would quote people, they would cut out that I was quoting people. And then you see these supercuts of me saying, I'm going to commit, you know, yep. some kind of crime or something. And that too is just the nature of being any public figure. Cause I have friends who are, you know, real celebrities and people believe things about them that are just bizarre, wrong, not even, not even the realm of facts. And that's because you're, you're like a kaleidoscope to people. They, they turn the kaleidoscope a certain way and that's what they see of you. And you have to become comfortable with that. But in terms of media, it's just disingenuous and it's dishonest. It's a lie. The way that I'm reported on and the way I'm covered and the way they bring up things out of context or try to cast me as defined by that. It's dishonest. And the little bit of autism in my brain used to be really triggered by that that it's just a lie it's one thing to say i read his book i thought it was shitty he's not a very good writer okay that's a matter of opinion it's another thing to pretend that i haven't done all these things and to bring up things out of context that's when you enter the realm of dishonesty yeah i have a hard time myself with hearing people parrot back opinions of mine. I had this experience with a journalist recently. She she wanted to put me on record on a story and she sent me all these quotes. It was interesting because the context of it was this. It was like, no, I don't like being in these things because I like to speak for myself and I, and I feel like I don't want it, what, I'm, what I believe to be distorted or whatever. And she sent me back these quotes that were a complete distortion of what I think on a topic that I'd already written about, that she had reached out to me about because of something I'd written. I'm like, you could just read what I wrote and you know that that's not what I mean. Like, how do you not see this? And that really drives me insane. But I think it's like, that's just the nature of the internet. And it's hard to swallow that pill as a writer, as someone who writes a lot and expresses himself a lot. It's hard to accept the fact that people are going to either on purpose or not just misinterpret me for the rest of my life. Well, and that's my problem. So there's two, there's two areas to that. One is, as a writer, I believe that it's not your job to interpret your own work. It is the job of other people to interpret your own work. But it's another thing where reporters know what they're doing and they know that they can chop up your words a certain way and they know that you can't sue them for libel because you technically said it, 
even if there's an underlying explanatory context to it. Just as people who are concerned about the truth, that should bother you. It should bother you that they lie. It should bother you that the Wikipedia page for anyone remotely interesting is a complete falsehood, a complete scam. And it should bother you that Wikipedia is the number one entry on every subject, not just people in Google. So for me, there's the aspect of, frankly, I think it's kind of cool the way they write about me in Wikipedia. Like, I'm just a bad boy. Chicks love bad boys. People <laughs> don't like pussies. You know, people like a strong guy. This includes men. I sound like a monster in a way, but there was, I read something, I can't remember who said it, but it's okay to be evil, but it's not okay to be incompetent or weak. And they make me out not as some kind of bumbling buffoon. That would probably bother me. They make me out as, oh, avoid this person. He's so terrifying. Yeah. Incompetent people aren't seen as dangerous and they see you as dangerous. Exactly. So for me, people read that kind of stuff, especially women. I've had a lot of women reach, reach out to me with a level of attractiveness such that it felt like they were catfishing or something and they're real. They go, Oh yeah, I read all this stuff and I don't even disagree with it. I don't get, I don't understand what the problem is though. Well, so now the next big thing though, it seems to be the conspiracy piece and conspiracy is definitely a word that people throw around to discredit, I think new ideas. Now, a lot of the times they are just, there are just conspiracies. I think probably most conspiracies end up being complete bullshit. Uh, the conspiracy that got you in a lot of trouble, and I'm actually not even sure what you think about this anymore, was certainly Pizzagate. That's where all the SPLC stuff, I've, I, it's like they kept bringing that up. Your, your Wikipedia page is like, I mean, it's like half about Pizzagate. What was going on with Pizzagate in 2016? This is definitely in the bucket of like, this is during your Trump thing when you kind of were moving full on into that political realm. What was going on there? Yeah, I'll, I'll say though that when you read those entries, there's a very much a dog that doesn't bark. What did I actually say about Pizzagate? And what did I mean by the term Pizzagate? That's lacking. So what they'll say is Mike Cernovich spread or propagated Pizzagate. And Pizzagate means that there was a pedophile auction happening in the basement of a, a pizza restaurant. But you have to look at that jump. Because that is a conspiracy. Like, let's, what is the, the Pizzagate conspiracy was that there was a pizza shop in in Washington, D.C., that was the center of a child sex ring and that there were in the leaked Podesta emails, Podesta, you know, working for Hillary Clinton. So th those emails leak and these sort of Reddit people found all of these instances of what they thought were secret code words about this pizza shop that meant pedophilia. And so began the conspiracy theory that the Clintons were involved with all these powerful people in D.C. in this child sex trafficking ring. Right. And I never said that. Mm -hmm. What I did was I posted to the hashtag I posted the hashtag that there is worldwide pedophile networks. I even mentioned Jeffrey Epstein by name. I mentioned uh, Jimmy Seville. I mentioned a number of people who were prominent people that got a pass. And then I posted to the hashtag, right? They've never, they've all tried. They've never had me on all the streams that I've done, which are many, as you know, and all the tweets that I've had. Where's the tweet that I say there's something going on at Comet Pizza? Why isn't that tweet actually posted? No, no, no. They say he mentioned Pizzagate. Therefore, he must have meant all of these other things. But Pizzagate started off due to the Podesta emails. There were just a lot of weird emails in there. There are a lot of emails that nobody will ask about to this day. No reporter asked about to this day. Nobody will talk about the pizza-related map, which I think is drugs. I, when I read it, I, I thought it was drugs. But I could understand how if you read an email from someone saying, hey, you left a handkerchief at the house 
something pizza related, a map of something pizza related, you want it back. I don't know anyone in the world who would hear that and say you a handkerchief at a rental property. They're going to mail you a handkerchief. I don't know. And maybe there is a, maybe there is an instant explanation. Like it's a, it's a shawl that I got. No, there's the no doubt. I read those emails and I thought, and I only got into the Pizzagate conspiracy thing like like six months ago. I wanted to just look into it. And it certainly seems like something. What I know, what I have no doubt of is that there was a kind of coded language that was being used in the emails. It's just to me unclear what, what was being spoken about. Exactly. So I, I've, I've been told from people that it was, it was drugs, incredible people. But regardless, if you read those emails, and that's why the media never mentions the emails. They just go right into Comet Pizza. There was a shooting. And it's like, okay, but I never said anything about Comet Pizza. I never said all these things that I'm accused of saying. What I said is, and I said this at the time, as a form of meta-commentary. I said, you know what? Every reporter um, is a pedophile. They're like, how dare you? And I go, okay, well, you say every Trump supporter is a Nazi and a racist. So why is it that you can say all of these people are Nazis and racist? But then if I say you're a pedophile, you're like, oh my God. And I go, so I go, that was just an example of meta commentary, an example of why is it okay to just use words that should have weight? The, the, a Nazi, that is a word that should have weight. You are not just making a slight at a person, you're dropping a neutron bomb on their head. No, but they'll, they'll throw that around all the time. So I go, how does that feel? And people just say every reporter's of pedophiles. They support pedophiles. They're pro-pedophile. Oh, and I can point to a column in the New York Times where they say pedophilia is a disorder, not a crime, right? Oh, but how dare you? How dare you try to say that we believe everything in the New York Times and that's an opinion, not a da-da-da-da. I go, okay, so the exercise there would be to say maybe before you call someone a white supremacist and destroy that person's life. Because when I talk about cancel culture, cancel culture is not me. I knew I was never going to live a normal life. But for most people, something like that, their life is over. Right. They're never going to have another job. That's it. They probably have a family. You're destroying that person's life. Maybe, maybe have a little bit of gravitas. And then they, again, try, that gets misrepresented in terms of what I was saying that I was doing at the time. But they leave that out, too, of the narrative. And then they only focus on it. But what I find interesting, though, is where... And this goes to kind of like information silos. If you say Mike Cernovich propagated Pizzagate, even though they're lying when they talk about my role, that might maybe get me banned from Bill Meyer. And I don't want to be on his show anyway. But to millions of people, they read that and they believe it. So it's not even effective agitprop. It keeps me maybe out of the so-called like decency podcast circle jerk. But I never, and that's where the media... Like they never bothered to understand my psychology. I never wanted to give a TED talk, I guess is the way I would say. <laughs> that was never my goal. I'm going to give a TED talk. No. The only thing maybe I'd like to do that won't be possible due to some of my controversy is I would have liked to have pitched my book on Oprah just as a shameless way to sell a million books or whatever. But I, I was, it's not like, oh my God, you've prevented me from giving that TED talk that I always imagine myself giving in front of all these people. I've been in those rooms. I lived in Silicon Valley, 2009, 2011. I've seen enough of the white liberal people who pretend to read books and they don't actually read them. I'm I'm fine with that. So in a way, in a way by insulting me, they're creating propaganda that helps me. I want to talk about actually, you know, the, the power dynamics of media right now, you know, the whole, the narrative. And you said something in hoaxed. You talked about how 
there's like an information war. There's a war for the narrative, I think that you said, which I thought was uh, pretty interesting in the context of something that I just read yesterday from someone who would absolutely, I think, be considered ideologically to the far, if not the opposite, I mean, nowhere near you. Nicole Hannah-Jones, the um, person who runs the New York Times 1619 project, which is sort of saying- I see it yeah, she tweeted She out. said out loud, the fight here yeah. is about who gets to control the national narrative. And this was in the context of, I mean, the, the, the tweet of hers directly previously was saying, it was saying that the 1619 Project was not historically accurate, and that was never the purpose. It was like this bizarre admission to um, a war for what people think that may or may not be true, but that is certainly important. And that has been my sense of the internet for years now. We are absolutely at a kind of information war. What is your read of that? Who are the main players? What is happening and what's at risk? What are we fighting for? The war of narratives is exactly it. That's why I am so frustrating to the media. Ryan Holiday even mentions that hoax. I just look at what they did to me and then I kind of do it to them. How dare he? How dare he use our tactics on us? Postmodernism was fringy 20 years ago when I was in college. But I noticed a trend where the philosophy department was adjacent to the African studies department. And the biggest corner office went to this new professor who just arrived. And I saw, okay, so this is is where the power base is going to be now. It isn't your Greek and Western philosophy. It's going to be your critical race theory, your postmodern theory, your critical gender studies. And I, I read all that literature. What they don't believe and this is mainstream now, at least the mainstream of the media, they don't believe in objective truth. They only believe in narrative. They believe narrative as in your personal story. That's why they say that if you, if a person says, I was harassed, and you claim that they weren't, you're now taking away their story. That was their experience, their lived experience, as they call it. They only believe in narrative, and every piece of information that they create and every content piece that they create is to further a narrative. And then the narratives are larger and the narratives are smaller. The 1619 Project, which by some estimations, the New York Times spent $3 million advertising. There are people who went in on the New York Times ad pages and calculated based on paid interactions what they probably paid. That was a grand narrative. That was the great leap forward. That was the Pol Pot year zero. America is a white supremacist nation. Capitalism is white supremacy. Capitalism is slavery. Therefore, we must abolish everything. And it's working, that's for sure. It's hard to talk about this stuff because uh, what you mentioned before about the sort of implication of uh, or the connection between capitalism and white supremacy, the idea that capitalism is itself white supremacist, it's made discussing things like the market versus something like socialism incredibly hard because you're accused of racism. Or if you're not accused, it's like people will sort of like, hop into your mentions and be like, hey, seems a little white supremacist, or they'll like imply that you're you're approaching something that you're not talking about at all. And it just doesn't even make sense. Historically, we can see that that's not true. But it is winning in that, yeah, people, and I'm someone who, I would say probably if the spectrum is like you on the one extreme of people willing to talk about stuff, and then like some banker who has so much to lose and keeps all his opinions to himself is on the other end, I'm probably in the middle somewhere. Like I definitely say more, but not everything. I am even scared to talk about some of this stuff that I care a lot about, which means to me that it's not really much of a war at all. It seems like actually they've won, and what you perhaps represent is one of many different people kind of 
striking back. It's like uh, trying to counter something that already exists. Yeah, we're in the Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. They won. And, and it, I, it always triggers my own fathers when I say this. I go, we're not in a war. They've already won it. The question is now, will it go kinetic? And what what kinetic would look like? What do you mean by kinetic? People are killing each other in the streets now, right? With these protests. Literally, people right. are shooting at each other to and from cars. There's an image that captures the age I don't know if you can even call it a Mexican standoff anymore. That might not be PC, but there's a protester pointing a pistol at a guy in his car pointing a pistol at the protester. And unfortunately, it's from some grainy video. I want that framed. That is the zeitgeist. Yeah. That's where we are as a country. Two people pointing firearms in each other's what face. I, what I love about that was it it, it was not a picture it was a video but it only lasted a couple seconds so the other thing that was really telling about it was we have no idea what caused it we don't we don't know where it came from we don't know how we got there all we saw was the worst piece and so it's this perfect it's this perfect rorschach test for how you feel about the world you immediately pick a side and we don't even know what it is we don't know what we're looking at right in the meta commentary of it is who's a good guy who's a bad guy what happened before what happened last there there was a video like that that elijah schaefer i think posted You've probably seen it because it went everywhere. But there was a man, and I think it was in Houston, but it was early on in the riots, just got stomped out, about killed. And then you're like, okay, that looks really bad. Good guys, bad guys. Then another video came out where the guy was running out with a sword. And then you go, oh, okay. I don't think you should have stomped his head when he's on the ground, but I kind of get it. But then a third video came out and the guy was minding his own business. He just had a sword by his business and was sort of standing guard. They were throwing bricks at him. He tried to run away from him, run away from the crowd. He couldn't run away, so he figured, all right, let him run me down or try to stay in his fight. So then when you watch the full video, he's kind of the good guy again. And Right. You're never going to piece this together unless you are just living online the way I know you do. I certainly do. And you, I, I saw all of those videos. I was glued to this story. And the average person, you just see the video that strokes your bias and you freak out no matter in, in whichever direction it is. But you have people who know that and kind of prey on that, on that impulse in most people. Yeah, they prey on it. And a lot of reporters too, they aren't particularly curious or intelligent. They don't, it's not what you think they are. I remember when I was, I grew up in a Midwestern town and reading the Atlantic or something was culture. Right. You really feel like this is before social media. So there's just a byline. I'd read articles, for example, in National Review and think, wow, Rich Lowry's like a badass, you know? And then you go online and like, he's a fucking dork. These people <laughs> are fucking dorks. They're not even that intelligent. They don't have wide interests, at least by their Twitter. Do these people listen to music? Do they do anything other than circle jerk each other with the same stupid, shitty little articles? And that, I think, takes the, the lure away from them, which I think is why people like me do pretty well because I'm pretty well-rounded, at least in what I share and what yeah, I show. Yeah, and it's perhaps that what is, I mean, it's easy to say that you're threatening because of the conspiracy stuff, but as you just kind of meticulously went through, it's more complicated than that, which anybody on their side could easily just, they can see that, they know that. So the question is, what is really 
frustrating about you. Is it that you're a Trump guy? I don't know. There are lots of Trump supporters. Or is it the fact that you have a massive presence online and that you can make stories go viral just by talking about them, that you're breaking stories yourself? You have all of these stories. I was talking to a reporter at the New York Times, who I will not name here because the New York Times is a pretty hostile work environment right now. And she's legitimately afraid for her job for you know talking about the wrong thing or whatnot. But she, she mentioned you and she's completely ideologically you know to the opposite of you. But she was like, he breaks stories. Like actually, he gets information that that we don't get. He's like a, a, a source of legitimate news that represents a new kind of a new kind of media person that could not exist even ten years ago. Is is maybe that what's threatening to, to these people? It's funny you mention that because I remember in 2017, a friend of mine in the White House gave me a, a story that I was going to tweet about, and then I forgot to tweet about it. And then I was flying and I went to the airport at one of those kiosks or whatever. And it was front page news, Maggie Haberman, what I didn't even think was important enough to write about. It just felt like a palace gossip, human interest story. That's when I realized because they themselves don't have wealth, they trade in the currency of social status. All of us, to varying degrees, we're on a spectrum. But ultimately, if you want to know a person, do they care about money or status? And VC people traditionally cared about money. Or if it was status, it was status within the hierarchy of money. But you didn't really see a lot of VCs saying, we need to start an opera house here in, in Mountain View, right? We, it was a different kind of currency. And then people who go into media tend to trade in social status. Do I know the powerful people in Washington? Do I know the great plays? Do I know the, the hot new movie now? Like the New Yorkers talk of the town kind of thing. So when some fucking hick like me just forgets to tweet about shit that I don't even think is that important, but to them, that's a a byline on the front page, top of the fold, New York Times. That was an epiphanous moment, actually. I was like, I was just going to tweet about it, and then I fell asleep before I did. But to them, this is this shows that you know what happened in. The story was about uh, Kirsten Nelson, how she... Once they got banned and out, she was moving her stuff into his office right away. And they were bringing her in and it was a change in the garden kind of thing. And a friend of mine had texted me a picture. I don't want to say of what, but but anyway, the kind of things that they would kill to have, I would just sort of take for granted. And I think that does bother them too, in, in terms of I'm less dangerous and more coveted. You know, separate from the media, one interesting thing that happens in, from where I'm sitting is just kind of like I try and wear my biases on my sleeve. I'm pro-business, definitely a capitalist, pro-freedom. And I work in the tech industry. I'm pro-tech. I think tech is mostly good. However, I critique it a lot these days, specifically the social media companies. I'm really, really concerned about the vice grip that they have increasingly on speech that's disseminated throughout the public square, which is now almost entirely digital. And so we've talked a lot about the media who often think of themselves as checks on tech, but in fact are pushing to work with it increasingly. I want to talk about now the tech side of things. You had your your documentary hoax removed from Amazon. I just checked this morning and it's, you know, not there. I can't watch it. First of all, I mean, is this censorship? You get the pushback is always like, I mean, it's, it's technically censorship, but is it is it wrong? You know, it's obviously, it's, you know, they, they literally censored you, but should they be allowed to do this? What's wrong with it? If Amazon were one of 10 people with 10 companies with 10% of the market share, who cares? But we run into the problem of monopolies, which is why I became less of a capitalist and more of a populist, because the, the questions that I did wrestle with on a pretty serious intellectual basis, I've run, I've read the books. Uh, that most people pretend to have read. I actually read them 
questions like what you raise are the complicated questions, which is, hey, Amazon, they, they have a private company. You wouldn't ask the bodega down the street to sell your book and get offended if the bodega sold your thing. And you're like, well, yeah, but this isn't a bodega. This is a monopoly or oligopoly at the very least between Amazon and iTunes. That's 80% now, I think, of streaming videos. That's why it becomes a problem. And that's why if you are a capitalist, you do need to come up with some elegant solutions because people like AOC and Warren and the new left, which is far more radical than I'm presented to be, wants to destroy all companies. Whereas I don't want to destroy all companies. But if you have monopoly power, that comes with a heightened responsibility. It comes with a heightened obligation. You can't overtly discriminate against people based on their political point of view. When you have a monopoly, everyone else, fine. It reminds me of, to a certain extent, you know, Rockefeller controlling the oil and working with the railroads, another monopoly to sort of like coordinate prices and things like this. You know, on the one hand, he's getting people their oil, but on the other, it's like, that's a lot of power for one person to have, and there's no alternative. And that seems like a problem no in, in the right. making. And then it's, and it's obviously a problem when you can't, when you can't speak on a platform. Amazon, you know, is one company, Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, these are all sort of speech platforms in, in a sense. Amazon's a lot of things. What happens when a couple of people who all live a few miles from each other, who all went to the same schools, their same color, the same class, are able to determine, you know, what is allowed to be said for a billion plus people. This is my core problem that I'm having right now as a as a capitalist actually. It is like I don't know where to draw the line here. I don't I don't I don't know. If you swallow a piece of the government, it Well, those all companies too, this might have been before your time. They colluded to keep down wages of people in a pretty famous class action of uh, antitrust class action. Google and Apple had. This was I think about 15 years ago when that settlement came out. I think you're a younger guy, but you, you know they do engage in antitrust-like behavior and they do collude. That's why I love when someone will get banned and then YouTube will ban the next day. They go, we don't coordinate, we don't collude. Well, that's news to me because I can pull up court documents showing that you collude on wages and that you colluded to keep software engineers' wages below $150,000. I mean, we could just find the court documents. So you do in fact collude. What happened to Alex Jones was the moment when I was really like, okay, I have to care about this. It was not that he was banned from anywhere. It was that he was banned by everybody at the same time. That to me was chilling. You have three companies who all worked together to erase somebody from the internet. That's a lot of power. That's 90% of reach. That's 90% of audience, which is why, again, the issue that I have developed into in terms of populism is we are dealing with the robber barons of, oh, that's funny, you read about the Rockefeller's the real story is not the launder stuff now with the Rockefeller Foundation. And you find out, yeah, we, we are going to have a trillionaire. It's going to be Jeff Bezos. But meanwhile, you can't run your own small business. You can't sell your items at your shop. But a monopoly can, and Walmart can, and large corporations can. And that's where this populist rage, and it's becoming rage, is coming from. And then the left, they are, at least the socialist type, most of them came from privileged backgrounds. I know I can tell the hoity-toity things that people do. You could, you know, there's little status symbols that are invisible unless you know the social class. But I know the kind of the wine that they drink and the effects they put on. They try to act like they're working class, but working class people don't drink Pabst. They drink Miller Lite, right? Because I that's like I grew up on junkyards, and Pabst is actually bad. Even working class people hardly drink Pabst. So there's an effect. It's like okay, so you're 
your, your status is showing. Status is a kind of, we can't hide our status. It's a language that is invisible to all who don't speak it. Those who speak it cannot be fooled. And that's the left-wing socialist movement. You know, they grew up relatively affluent, mom and dad making maybe, say, 250000 a year. So they had that BMW, which isn't that expensive if you're, you know, at a certain income bracket. And then welcome to the world where you're going to make $28,000 a year your first job. Welcome to hell. Welcome to reality. No more BMW unless they're paying for it. So they are the more resentful, lazier, loser class of people versus the populace who they want to work, but they're not being allowed to work or they're being squeezed out by people like Bezos. And all that is doing is creating a groundswell of anger for the rich, which bothers me because I'm, I'm in, you know, like you said, you're in between me where I'll say most anything and the traditional VC who doesn't want to say too much. Well, I'm in between the bootlickers who are like, poor person never gave me a job <laughs> or I'm going to bootlick every rich person versus eat the rich. There, there is, there's a lot of space in between those two positions. Yeah, I, I get called a bootlicker <laughs> a lot <laughs> online. It doesn't bother me. That's just not, it, I've never, like, it just seems like a funny insult. The thing that bothers me is the guillotine gifts. And mm-hmm. it bothers me because I don't think they're kidding. And I, I look at that and I think, wow, this is, we are actually in a really scary place right now. I've been following the Antifa stuff that's happening in the Pacific Northwest for a couple of years now. You were just talking about a certain kind of leftist in media who comes from you know tremendous privilege and almost has to, to be able to have a job like that. Most of these people went to really good schools. Most of them came from money. I get all of that, but I'm watching Antifa and I don't think that those are the same people, frankly. They're, they're definitely lefties. They're definitely populist sort of lefties. They strike me as almost, I think they look they look fairly like middle or working class. And I think that, I, I just tweeted the other day, first of all, we have to acknowledge that they exist. And I do think we have to address whatever that problem is. This is a pretty large movement, I would say, at this point. Yeah, the violence from the left and the guillotine shifts, that's not, that's not putting on air, as you can observe that in the streets on any given day. And that is growing. And they are, they are, how do you say this? They are not people who grew up the way I grew up. And I can, I can, I can tell these things. They always try to say, we're working class people. We're this, we're that. I'm like, dude, I, I, I grew up in a junkyard. You're, you're not going to trick me. I know what growing up poor is. My parents own wealth. Like, you're, you're not going to fool me. Like AOC, I grew up poor. No, you didn't grow up poor. Yeah, she you're went a very to, pretty yeah. girl. You went to Boston University. I didn't even know where Boston University was, right? I went to college. Go fuck yourself, right? But they try to put on that, those working class airs, which, by the way, is, is traditional. Marx himself had been quite privileged, and Engels sort of took care of Marx as his patron, and they grew up in rich families, and Marx got a woman pregnant and then abandoned her, and that tends to be their motif. The issue, though, is they are growing as a political force. They hate tech more than the right-wing populists do. And that's why I'm watching people on the chessboard making all the wrong moves. So, for example, Kevin Roos tweets out that this video is popular. Facebook rushes to help him, not realizing the New York Times wants Facebook to fail. They're on record. Like, you can just read their tweets. Why should Facebook even exist? And rather than realizing that conservatives just want to, if you can post mad out videos about Russiagate, which has just been discredited, the Steele dossier just been discredited. If they can post their kooky shit, why can't we post our kooky shit? Well, it endangers people. Okay, Steve Scalise, a congressman got shot up. 
by a guy whose brain got spun up by all this ideology too. The Young Turks sponsored by YouTube. I mean, that would be like naming your podcast DSS. I don't really mean it's the Waffen SS. I mean, it's super sexy, right? right. You have lightning bolts because, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod. So what they're doing is they're pandering to people who literally want to destroy their companies. But that's also too because they're all from the same sort of Well, I would say they don't just want to destroy their companies. I believe that there is a non-trivial group of people in this country who would like to see these people dead. Like it's, it's that it seems that intense to me. They want billionaires dead. That's for sure. But they don't want, say, like a software engineer at Facebook or a comms person at Facebook. So that, that's two different layers. One is that the media is in direct competition to social media companies. If Facebook announced that it was going out of business, the left would be joyous, especially left-wing media, because that's more money for them. They're, they're ad agencies. The way to think of the New York Times is that it isn't a media company. It's an advertising company. When you think about that, they make more sense. Facebook, though, is pandering to them. It's like, what do they do? Write another mean article about you? That doesn't actually stop users from using Facebook. Nobody's going to say, oh, my God, the blue checks on Twitter are mad that Billy Graham is pop. Oh, you mean Christians are popular in America? Shocker. Shapiro's <laughs> popular. Oh, so you mean Judeo-Christian, family values, people This are is what strikes me as crazy about – so Kevin Roos has an entire – it's like a genre of tweet of his now where he'll just tweet the most popular things on Facebook. And I'm like, Facebook is not pushing those articles. That's just what people want to read. So – what you're actually doing right now is you're saying it's like, I am mad that people yeah. on Facebook don't want to read what I'm writing. Right. They don't want to read about how a 30-year-old woman sneaks into the house of a 13-year-old girl and takes pictures. You know, oh, I don't sneak in, even though she tweets out. Sometimes they don't want their parents to know I'm coming over. Sorry, dude. That's creepy. 30-year-old man says that. Sorry, dude. Creepy. Oh, we're talking There's about the New York Times journalist right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the idea is that most people, not even most, nobody cares about shitty TikTok kids. You know, good for them. This, this whole idea that you're a reporter, and they do suffer from a little Peter Pan syndrome. Why do you care what kids on TikTok are doing, right? Are you going to listen to Forever Young on repeat and wish that you, were, you have some kind of nostalgia or something, which is probably some element? People don't care about that. In America, people care about jobs. They care about their religion. They care about their families. That's... 70% of America. Do I have a job? How's the wages? You know, my religious beliefs in America is predominantly Christian, but there's a Judeo-Christian alliance. And that's why people like Shapiro are so popular and Prager. And then the, just the state of the world, not, ha not having kind of riots. Just people want to read. People want to read Billy Graham Jr. And that really, and that shows to the covetedness of it all too. That's why I said, that a lot of why they're mad is they're just jealous that more people don't want to read them, but they write about things that you start. I try to read them. And I, a lot of it too is they're lightweights. I'll read their articles and it's a very superficial aspect of whatever is happening. And then they tweet things like, Oh, I wrote a thing. They have this little like goofball. I wrote a thing. How about you just say what you wrote? What's your fucking thesis? Lean into it. But they don't want to make that level of commitment because that would have emotional vulnerability. And then if people dissect your arguments, you might feel a little attacked and then you might have to defend them. So it goes, I just wrote a thing about this thing and oh, I don't know. And they wave their little hands up because they don't want to just lean into a position 
Because if you do, you have to deal with these issues with a certain level of depth. Well, it's just the way that you survive on Twitter is by not caring about things or just looking like you don't care about things. It's an actual kind of armor. And that, I think, cuts across. I mean, it is just much easier to weather criticism if you don't look like you're taking something seriously. But psychologically, though, that mindset originated with the hipsters. The hipster movement gave dignity to being poor, I think is the best way I saw it described. I don't shop at a thrift store because... I don't want to work and have a good job. I shop at a thrift store because I'm like a cool cultural sort of thought leader. There was even that uh, famous song about a guy a going thrift to the thrift shop. shop yeah, and, Macklemore. Yeah, cool all that is. And that idea of, and this is generational especially, and, and your generation and you, basically anyone outside of Gen X of so say 35 and under, very much like if I don't care, you can't hurt me. And that's their whole life, though. It isn't just if I pretend not to care because I care. I don't pretend not to care. I care about what I say. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to pretend not to care. But that doesn't mean that, that that's a vulnerability that they have. And that's why the writing isn't very good. Right. I like to read good writing. Their writing is not good because it's not vulnerable. It's not authentic. It isn't talking about their fears. I would read the article from Kevin Roos, which is I wake up every day terrified that I'm not going to have a job because Facebook has all this power. I have a wife. I have a number of kids. I'm just trying to live a normal life. And I would read the fuck out of that. Me too, honestly. Really, I would. I, I think that that's valid. As a writer, I care about writing, good writing, and people who tell stories. Historians like the Hannah Jones thing bothered me on historical grounds. I do care about the way that people tell our history, and I want quality reporting as well. The New York Times itself has broken really important stories to me on China, on COVID-19. They were not terrible in the, in the early days. Tech media was atrocious, but, but the actual New York Times reporting was pretty good. All of their work on UFOs, really, really, really good. I, I, I agree with you. I would read it. Uh, last question for you. What I really want to know, close this down, is just I want to know what you actually believe in. What motivates you? What is your like primary motivation right now? Primary motivation right now is that I'm a little bit caught up in the game, so to speak. So because I didn't, I didn't plan to be here. I was accidentally part of the everyone caught up in the tsunami of Trump mania, election mania, 2015, 2016. Hit, hit everyone. It, it was it was unavoidable, and then I you know I ended up in this position. So primarily, it is my motivation is helping people see things from a different point of view, keeping people informed, trying to have some kind of reality pegged to what is really happening, and to share the truth to let people know what the truth is, the truth in all its ways. That's why I've written about you know how many people who report or do what I've done. I, you know, I've written about ayahuasca mindset, weight loss, health and fitness, financial stuff, any kind of subject people could imagine. That's, that's my goal is to inform people about the world and more importantly about their own world and their inner world and to not just treat politics as your savior or your doomsday. I get that a lot. I push back against the narrative that if Biden wins, it's over. I'm constantly pushing back. Why is it over? I didn't know when Obama was in office. I adapted. My life doesn't hinge on whether or not Trump or Obama wins. And a lot of people, too many people in politics, that's why they become angry and jaded is it becomes a proxy for their own failings. My life sucks. Therefore, it's because of Obama's fault or it's because of Trump's fault. Trying to bridge that gap between the personal and the political is where I'm steering the ship.
You are listening to Problematic.